Hello and welcome to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. I'm Kelly McKercher. I'm a designer, a writer, and I use them, they pronouns. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which I'm recording this podcast, the Wongal and Gadigal people of the Ori Nation, as well as all nations across Australia. This series aims to stretch our view of human-centered design through talking with practitioners who are working beyond the double diamond, who are pushing practice. On today's podcast, we speak about gender diversity in design, about what designers can learn from people who facilitate games, and why we should slow down in our design work. Slowing down is a reoccurring theme across this series. I'm joined by Ruby Quayle and Hayley Cooperider. Hayley is a designer of collaboration. Hayley focuses on creating the processes through which groups can more reliably reach their desired futures. Ruby is a service and interaction designer. She's interested in socially conscious design and achieving positive social change through the use of digital technology. A disclaimer that in this podcast, we speak about our experiences as trans and gender diverse people. We don't attempt to speak on behalf of all trans and gender non-conforming designers. Hello and welcome to the show, Hayley and Ruby. Can you start off by telling us your pronouns and the land you're located on? Yeah, sure. Hi, this is Hayley. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm located on Wurundjeri country. Hi, my name is Ruby. Uh, my pronouns are she and her, and I am located in Nub, so on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Excellent. It's so nice to have you both. And Haley, I wonder if you could start off telling us a bit about your design vibe when you started designing, how that's changed over time and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Look, my story comes from an interest in collaboration specifically. So uh, how do we work together better? Initially inspired by things like Wikipedia and open source software back in the early 2000s well, you know, finally we have the internet, we have these abilities to collaborate at scale. And that means that we're going to be able to create the world that we really want. Um, And after kind of hanging out, waiting for that to happen and realizing it wasn't going to just sort of magically happen on its own while I read philosophy, I decided to, to kind of roll up my sleeves and get more into it and learn more about how the world works, how collaboration works. And that led uh, through many twists and turns to working, moving to Melbourne to join a firm called Collab Forge, which sought to support uh, groups, teams, whole communities and networks to collaborate more effectively, did a lot of work in the public sector. And at some point we came up with this term of collaboration design. It's a bit meta, but it's uh, designing the process through which people collaborate. And, you know, the more we learned about that, we were coming from this sort of geeky software digital perspective, but that there's this whole world of practitioners, facilitators coming from things like art of hosting or the MG Taylor method, and increasingly the world of design, service design, and the various sort of process mindsets that those bring, uh, just paying attention to creating the conditions for people to collaborate effectively. Uh, We often talked about it as uh, composing a collaboration, kind of like composing a music score. But of course, it's collaborative, so you have to collaborate on the score as well as the end, you know, and on we go. But more recently, I have been following an intuition around the role that games can play in developing collaboration capability. So, uh, you know, my, my interest as much as anything has been everybody needs to collaborate. 
they we want to see more distributed collaboration people taking up the solutions that are available and implementing them in their local community in a way that makes sense for them so you know marrying the beautiful top-down work that we can do through our institutions with local grassroots movements but um, people in community don't always have the same access to resource and skill building as we do in our large organizations who can hire trainers and you know do capability building programs but games are something that everyone has access to. Uh, and in particular, I was playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons where, you know, we're all creating this story together at the table. Um, and the quality of, of co-creation and story building we do was so inspiring. And so I started pulling that thread, which has resulted in my current work with uh, a small uh, party of adventurers, friends of mine and folks I've met along the way. We call ourselves Amble Studio. Uh, it's about a commitment to taking your time to kind of find your way together. And we try to design games that help people collaborate by way of playing them. Um, those are story-oriented games or games that are more like board games where you're crunching numbers together, um, games that you can play in Trello, the productivity tool, all sorts of stuff, uh, as well as, you know, we have a podcast talking about that. And I think that's where I feel like I've actually started to become more of a designer designer. So, you know, in order to, to deliver games which have visuals, actual physical products or digital apps that deliver these games, I've been learning code. I've been learning a lot more about visual design using Figma. I've been learning a lot more about the process of a team actually, as opposed to coaching people to move through, to develop a process from themselves, actually moving through a design process with a team. So I feel a lot more almost legitimate in an odd way as a designer in the more traditional sense. Um, so yeah, I guess even so, I think the most exciting moments with Amble were uh, on a game night, we played somebody else's game and we said, oh, we wish this had more prompts. And within an hour, we had completely remixed it to be a completely different version of itself. And it just happened out of nowhere. And that was because we had invested so much time in developing our own collaboration capability as a group. So I think my vibe is still about trying to create that group flow by investing, you know, all of the kind of alignment energy that, that, um, that's required to get there. Oh, and I wonder for, for folks who listen to this podcast, Haley, who are working in maybe a human centered design process, a user centered design process that maybe has a bit of pace to it or an expectation of pace. What are your thoughts about how how or why folks should amble more in their work? Yeah, wow, that's a big one. I want to go a million places with that. Um, one is just to recognize that the conditions that we're in as designers often don't permit us to amble. I think that's a lot of what the Agile movement in its best form is trying to produce is a sort of a sense of allowing ambling and creating the organizational permission through which we might actually discover our way to an answer. Um, and so the reason for it is, I think if you, if you look at all the things that can go wrong in a design process in terms of being too steered by the wrong agenda or not really listening deeply or having your own ego or your own internal stuff clouding yourself as you try to authentically observe the, the user or the, you know, or the people that you're trying to, to serve through your work, so much of it can come down to being in a rush needing to have this done yesterday, starting getting to start the project two months late because of procurement. And so I think there's a kind of long vision of Amble, which is to um, 
try to really communicate the value of slowing things down for that reason that we can actually do all of the things as practitioners that we know need to be done to do things well and create solutions that are robust over the long term and more likely to um, not be right the first time, but um, be an improvement the first time as we go. Thank you, Haley. And Ruby, tell us about your design vibe where you started designing and how that's changed over time. Yeah. So um, I originally, my sort of design journey sort of started in industrial design. So I, I come from a very sort of producty, very physical uh, background. I went to uni and studied industrial design. I really wanted to sort of be making things. My, um, I had this strange uh, upbringing of having a mum that was a primary school art teacher. Um, and then on my other side of the family, there were doctors and scientists and three sort of logic-based people. And I've sort of found myself in the in-betweens of that, but wanting to sort of create beautiful things and to use my hands and to be very tactile and very generative, but also with this technical kind of need to sort of pick things apart, which sort of took me down the line of industrial design a bit. Um, while I was sort of, you know, studying that and learning a lot about that, I kind of became more disenfranchised with more traditional parts of industrial design. So furniture design and lighting design and craft didn't really speak to me. They sort of felt a bit kind of uh, hands-off or sort of a bit more um, uh, static than what I wanted to be working with. Um, I sort of kind of came across service design within this time and more sort of unique human-centered design. I also sort of fell in love with the concept of tools and how to make tools that do various things and what tools do we use, what do we not use, and everything about that. And sort of that took me down the line of sort of human-computer interaction and sort of digital design there. So I sort of found myself with this sort of desire to make tools that would do help, that would help people and make tools that were beautiful. And that was kind of how I sort of... Uh, structured most of my industrial design learning coming out of that i think one of the things that i also became quite interested in was the concept of community particularly sort of organic communities rather than uh intentional ones um uh i was fortunate enough to be doing a lot of work around social media around when the uh, cambridge analytica story broke so there was a lot of interesting discussions then around like you know, what are the kinds of communities that social media creates? What, what are the sort of, how is knowledge spread? What is, what is social media as a tool for information gathering and how does that, that work? And I think that was a really interesting sort of, uh, space for me to be, to be thinking in and starting to think about doing further research in. So I, uh, started jumping down the idea of around what makes healthy communities and what makes unhealthy communities from a, from a human computer action, from a tools-based approach. There's a lot of research from a sort of psychological level about social media and things around like at a very psychological level, but the sociological stuff is still quite developing, particularly when it comes around human computer interaction and the devices we use to access social media and what they're designed for. So that was why I did a lot of research a few years ago for an honors degree. Um, and since then I've really been sticking around those sort of dual focuses around, uh, you know, the, how people and communities sort of understand each other and talk with each other and develop with each other, as well as how to develop tools to either help that or hinder that or to, to some ends of that and to try and sort of 
encourage both of those. Uh, so I've done some work recently with Victoria Legal Aid around helping them understand, you know, the tools they make to understand the legal practice and, and manage that. Uh, currently I'm working for a consultant company called By Many, who do culture consulting. So a lot of that work is around um, understanding what are the artifacts and tools that we can make to help create like healthy and sustainable corporate cultures and what's that sort of look like and uh, what are the sort of um, touch points that we need to sort of be on top of for that. So there's a sort of very mixed digital design service design background that I have when it comes to this. And that's, I guess, my design vibe. So around tools and uh, tool, tools and peoples. Excellent. And I know, Ruby, you've done some really important and beautiful writing about visibility in design and more specifically the visibility of trans and gender diverse designers. Um, and I, I suspect that many of us have had this experience of being the only trans or gender diverse person in a design team or maybe in a team more broadly. And I wondered if, if that's something that you can speak to Ruby. Yeah. So it is, it's an interesting, it's an interesting position to be in. There's a few different, I guess, sort of factors in it that kind of affect how I think about it. One is that it's, it's, it's often weird when your sort of work circles and your professional circles don't quite match your social circles. So there's like maybe a lot of like, uh, difference in understanding, like a lot of, you know, I'm a, I'm a young queer person in Melbourne. A lot of my friends are queer. Many of them are trans. Many of them have sort of have a lot more kind of like assumed knowledge that doesn't really happen within my professional circles. Um, and so like the kind of conversations that I can have with friends that I've made at uni and through our school and for the various things are very different to the ones that I make professionally, just due to sort of a different kind of, um, a different kind of sort of, yeah, I guess almost culture, but there's this different, um, sort of like standard level of knowledge. Um, I'm finding that I'm often, you know, in, in sort of groups and stuff as someone who's meant to educate around these things, someone whose sort of idea is to be the, uh, almost like a, a sensitivity reader for a lot of things to make sure that like nothing's bad's happening towards trans people within like things we're producing or things. And that's really an uncomfortable place to be, not only just because it's not what I'm trained for. It's not, I don't, I'm not a. I'm not a copy editor. I'm not good at picking up on subtext or anything like that. That's not, that's not what I've trained for at all. But it's also that you're often doing it, the vulnerability of your own identity. Um, when you're having to, a lot of design work and working with people, and I'm sure Ellie and you both know, is disagreement, is trying to convince people to do things, to make decisions, to listen to things. And when you're doing that under somewhat duress due to the fact you have a personal stake in it it's really really hard um you learn very quickly at least in my design thing that you need to get very good at killing your babies just because things change quickly things change very quickly and it's quite difficult to sort of keep on top of those things and so sometimes ideas that you may be really really enamored with just disappear um and then you just have to sort of be okay with that and that can be quite hard when you've got a personal stake in it that you can't really do anything about um and particularly if you're a designer who does work with marginalized communities which i have been done or done work in government where you have a huge sort of user base that you need to cater to or things like that there was a lot of times when you find yourself having to make decisions and having to sort of prioritize people's interests where you can't 
be completely um, impartial to how it is because you have a personal stake. And I think that's true for a lot of design things. But when you're the only person who has that stake in a team or in a place, it's hard to find like organizational backup if you're, if you're trying to do that, because oftentimes if you're the only person, there's more people talking over you than, than yeah, than talking. Oh, oh. And what about from your perspective, Haley? are there experiences, lessons, thoughts? Yeah, sure. The, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, yeah, something that sparked for me listening to Ruby. My story is maybe a little bit different in that um, I moved to Melbourne around age 30. You know, I'm 40 now. Um, and I already was going through, you know, in, in my own private life, um, thinking about transitioning, but I was not, um, I hadn't, I was, you know, in my uh, original assigned birth gender and still presenting that way when I came here and joined the company that I was working for, which was a quite small um, firm. Yeah, and I didn't have like a huge queer community yet either. It was sort of starting to develop, but that was, um, yeah, kind of a roundabout road for me. I think I, as when you start kind of later in life, uh, it can it can be a little bit different. You're not kind of going to, when you're going out in clubs in your 20s, when I was living in New York, like sometimes I was going out you know, sort of quietly on my own, exploring my gender. But other times I was going out drinking with my friends, you know, uh, as this other person that I was pretending to be. Uh, and so I guess I was lucky in that I was working in this field of collaboration. I was, I was um, participating in the evenings in a group called the Collaboratory, which was uh, something that was happening, you know, about, you know, sort of ten, five to 10 years ago to try to help people who are change makers and nonprofits just, you know, network and, and develop new skills and insights. And so I was around a lot of people who were very uh, with it, I guess, or open-minded or, you know, may have been queer themselves. And, you know, some of my, my good friends that I really leaned on through my transition, I met through those communities and, um, you know, had, who had similar experiences. So it felt like a safe space. But not a lot of folks going through, you know, gender transition or, or dealing with uh, gender diversity issues. And so I guess my experience was a lot of folks kind of learning alongside me. Uh, and so from that perspective, I, I wasn't expected as much to be the person who kind of knew everything because people kind of watched me go through it. You know, I was just discussing um, with one of my colleagues today who was there for this whole journey that the firm I was with, um, I was, I was in the process. I had come out to my whole team and we were kind of waiting for the right moment for me to transition. We had put kind of a date two months off in the future and kind of coming up with a plan about how it was all going to happen and how we we're going to email everybody at the right time and just the right way. And then we secured our first very large project. And we realized that through the course of that project, um, we'd be meeting you know, dozens, if not hundreds of new people. And we sort of did the math and went, uh, Haley can't transition in the middle of this project. <laughs> we better start it now. How about in like a month? Actually, how about in, well, actually, no, actually, it's just only really these meetings that are happening and they're really cool. These folks that we we're working with at this other client. So actually we could, they'll be fine. We can work this out with them. So 
maybe it could start Monday. And actually that means it starts now because it's Thursday and we don't have any meetings. And all of a sudden in the course of this meeting, I had transitioned at work. <laughs> I came up with a plan to just like change my LinkedIn details and change my email and all in the course of one weekend. And it was like this amazing moment of um, suddenly just this thing that was going to be a grind of another two months of living this double life because I was living my entire outside of work life as myself. Um, just was just in an instant, just washed away. And that was a pretty amazing feeling. I was recently doing some work on diversity and inclusion where we're taking folks uh, in a large organization through a sort of 90 minute um, group discussion process around, uh, yeah, around being, reducing microaggressions in the workplace and just being more appreciative of people coming from different backgrounds. And so you're dealing with folks who, maybe have very little experience of engaging with diversity, you know, and I was thinking really deeply about, um, you know, anticipating some of their responses and, and, and something I was coming to. Yeah, it's true that the amount of diversity in the world that we're likely to experience is increasing, you know, as we become more open and accepting, as we become more globally connected. Um, and in a sense, there's more possibility for you to encounter someone who, you know, you don't know enough about them in order to avoid a faux pas, you know? And so people often ask, maybe when they're feeling a little defensive is, you know, are we meant to know every little fit way that we can get something wrong? And, you know, maybe we're getting a little bit too sensitive with these microaggressions and, you know, how am I supposed to know everything? And I think the kind of response that I came up with is that it's, it's an ever extending horizon. There's no finish line. Um, and so you know, maybe the opportunity is for us to be more com comfortable or more adept with that ongoing, you know, journey and that, um, you know, trans folks have uh, and gender diverse folks have um, one, have maybe, you know, run a little bit further ahead, you know, towards the horizon, towards the undiscovered territory uh, and, and can help guide in some respects. That for you, Ruby. One thing I, I find interesting at the moment is how little intersectionality comes into a lot of kind of discussion around these things. Uh, I think a lot of the sort of discussion we have around diversity in design is often siloed to a particular sort of, I guess, um, avenue of privilege or oppression. So, you know, there'd be a discussion about gender, a discussion about race, a discussion about ability, discussion about class. And these are all like, there's points to be made in all of these of course there's these are all like very like legitimate way uh, sort of parts of power and power dynamics but i think what's quite interesting is the difficulty in trying to engage with those and to sort of make more further progress in that in that they're so limited uh most people i would say especially you know you are experiencing one sort of avenue of, of oppression like that are often in an intersection of multiple and it's often the intersection of that, that is sort of the issue. So like, you know, it's, and that's sort of if difficult. So if I'm in a meeting talking to, you know, around uh, issues of gender equality and a lot of the discussion that is happening is very specific to like, you know, the, the rights and, and sort of, uh, oppression of, of cis women in design or in cis women in society, you know, how do I bring up, you know, issues around trans misogynoir or like various different things that sort of, you know, are angled on a, on an, on a angle of, of intersectionality. Like, how is that 
where can that fit in that? Because I'd have to pull in stuff from somewhere else. And there's a lot of that that needs to sort of come in. And I think a lot of our discussions need to have factor in intersectionality. We need to stop thinking about uh, things as, as, as quantities, as sort of these very sort of defined kind of what goals, because I don't think that's going to accomplish anything. If we start looking at it like that, we need to start thinking about, uh, just, you know, having more diverse people in rooms, sort of having more diverse conversations, thinking about intersections, thinking about, uh, where are the gaps in, in, in our ability to, to, you know, cater to people, to design for people and focusing on that rather than focusing on sort of these linear uh, like almost always binary between a, a, an oppressed and an oppressor on a single axis that often doesn't really lead to any kind of, you know, constructive conversation or, or constructive change. Mm. And even as a kind of visual symbol of design, one thing that I found heartening and it's, it's never as far progressed as we would like it to be is you know, maybe 10 years ago, I'd go to a design conference and the only people speaking would be older, cisgendered white men. And that, that was a very predominant voice of, of design. And I've sort of noticed in particular in the last couple of years that there is a, there is an increasing diversity in who gets to talk about design. And that's still not, not big enough. It's still not expansive enough. It's still probably not intersectional enough, but I feel like there has been some progress made, some awareness, and I, I hope that that will sort of continue as a trajectory. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good that we're having this conversation now. Like, I think we're part of that change as well in a certain way. I mean, uh, by the same token, we all are quite white, and there are certain kind of uh, privileges we have to be here right now, particularly as designers. Um, it's, it's a field which, in a lot of ways, requires immense privilege to really get into. Um, but with, with degrees and various different things required to really, uh, like get your foot in the door for a lot of this work. Um, and so it's, it's important to acknowledge that when we acknowledge what needs to be done is to acknowledge what isn't being done currently, what we're not doing currently and what we've done in the past. Ooh, and I wonder, you know, as we start to wrap up to loop her back around to Haley and Haley, some of the things you shared at the start of the conversation about about games and about the potential for games. And I'm wondering if you can see a relationship between, you know, how we keep ever expanding design and who gets to design and what role games might have in that. Yeah, right. Um, well, I think what was some of what Ruby was saying was bringing up in me is, um, you know, thinking about some things that some people I'm close to are working on in their own industry around trying to increase the diversity in their own organization and how so much of it comes down to the sort of different points in the, the talent pipeline at which people are given opportunities to get the kind of experience and skills that are then demanded by the competitive, um, you know, interview and job recruitment process. And, and so, you know, all of our um, efforts in the moment to be more inclusive are going to be clunky and based on these, you know, very brute quotas and, you know, trying to kind of find, I guess, could we have made this panel less white, you know, like, can we, oh, that feels a bit awkward. Okay. We'll cram someone in here. Is that tokenism? I don't know. Um, 
But over the long term, if you almost are more of like a systems mindset, you can start to look at all of the pieces of all of the places and all of the pieces of the pipeline, um, you know, that, that allow people to get into these more, um, um, you know, meaningful opportunities to be a designer, uh, you know, that right now are really driven by privilege. And yeah, I'll own that for sure. Definitely coming from a lot of privilege. Uh, I guess the, the vision with design is, you know, in that moment of playing Dungeons and Dragons that I had, you know, I've realized that this was fewer playing with essentially free tools. Like, yeah, you can pay for the nice books, but all the rules are free online. Um, and this was being played globally before uh, the internet existed as a phenomenon. And so there's something about that, that ability to self-direct your inquiry and for the capability to be kind of learned off the shelf. And, you know, we're seeing that as well with YouTube and, you know, the ability to teach yourself uh, through online learning. And there's something about games with their interactivity that can complement that kind of learning by giving you that sort of simulated space or um, with, with more narrative-based or role-playing-based games can give you actually, uh, transport you into an emotional experience, um, you know, of, of a situation that is actually quite, um, you know, experiencing something through a story game can actually really resonate in the same way that of experiencing it in real life. So those are the kinds of things that games can offer are quite specific, but I think they have a role to play in terms of, um, creating capability building opportunities that happen outside of either an academic or a professional context. Mm. And I think sometimes it can be really sort of hard and clunky for organizations and communities to come together and talk about the things that matter to them to make new futures together. And certainly playing a game with you recently, Hayley, it sort of opened my eyes to the opportunity to also take things a little bit less seriously and slow down a little bit <laughs> and some of our settings don't permit for a lot of fun or a lot of play but those things you know have real purpose in design and have real purpose in relationship building and community and um I mean let's all play more games <laughs> well, and, and something I wanted to add was that um one of the hypotheses that we're testing and increasingly validating is that um People who run games, especially collaborative, co-creative games, make for really good facilitators. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's playing out where we're seeing it uh, in real time with some of the folks on our team and some other folks we're talking to. So I think that's another thing. The world needs more people who can just guide a group, a small group or a large group through a process. Um, and that's true in design and it's true in, you know, community decision-making. So something there. And I think as designers, we can sometimes want to control that too much. Um, especially if we're not aware of our own positionality and who we are and who we are in relationship to the people we're working with. Absolutely. So coming to a close, I wonder, uh, Ruby, if you could tell folks where they can follow your work or maybe read some of your writing. Um, sure. I'm Ruby Quail Design, almost everywhere I think now. Uh, yeah, I think, so I've got some writing on Medium. I'm Far too active on Twitter. Far too active. Excellent. How about you, Haley? Uh, yeah, I think the best place to find what I'm up to these days is at amble.studio. That's our website. Uh, and there you'll find links to our podcast and to our Twitter and our LinkedIn. So your engagement channel of choice. Uh, if you want to follow me particularly on Twitter, I'm less active than Ruby, but I'm on there 
at I'm Haley Coop. Excellent. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. Um, Haley, Ruby, just an enormous thank you for joining me on a Monday evening in the middle of lockdown. Um, for sharing your insights, your thoughts, your experiences. We're incredibly grateful. Thank you. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com. You can sign up to the community newsletter, learn about upcoming online community gatherings, or join the Slack channel where you can connect with thousands of other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thank you for listening and see you next time.